Tuesday, June 22nd, macro setup. Dan Nathan, my dear friend, always joins me. Our presenting sponsor this week, it's IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. We're going to be joined by the great Peter Hanks in a little while, Laker fan uh, waddling in his despair. But before we get to Peter Hanks and the Laker stuff, Dan, how are you? Yeah, guy, there's a lot of despair on both coasts. <laughs> in the NBA, I mean, there, there are teams in the middle of this country that we're not supposed to be winning right now. Wouldn't you say so? Uh-huh. Well, I don't know about that, but I will tell you, nobody thought the Hawks were going where they're going. I mean, yeah. good for the Hawks. And the NBA, think about it. They, they're in the – they're going to the big dance here, Dan. I mean, it well, comes down to that. Them and the Bucks. I think they beat the Bucks. And on the flip side, everybody's now in love with the Phoenix Suns. We'll see. But the good news is um, – the Nets of Brooklyn have been defeated. Yeah, yeah. The, the the Hawks Suns final NBA Finals is not what the NBA had envisioned. No. I don't think coming out of the pandemic. Let's just say that, okay, big guy. All right, let's let's move on because there are some other there are some some risk assets in this macro environment that are kind of acting like the Lakers and the Nets right now. They were poised for greatness. They were built for greatness, and they are just not acting particularly well. And they have actually the summer off at this point. Giving up the ghost, as they say, you know, some of the things that I thought would continue on into the 4th of July and through the dog days of the summer, obviously you're giving it back. I mean, we can talk about commodities all you want, but the moves in lumber, the moves in copper, I mean, those things have been legendary, not only on the way up, but on the way back down. And we talk about it all the time, Dan. Commodities take the stairs up and the elevator down. Well, We're in the elevator portion of that trade, although I do think we're close to the ground floor. But that brings us to this great Wall Street Journal piece, which we've put up. Will you sort of speak to that? And then maybe I can speak to it as well, because I know we have much different views on this one. Yeah, well, we also know that the Wall Street Journal, the good folks who do the graphics there, um, they know that you do well with pictures. And this is a great picture (laughs) here, right? It's kind of color-coded, if you will. And it goes back to probably when you started trading in the markets back there in the 60s or so. But it's talking about inflation, inflation expectations, and how things have kind of gotten um, a little excited at different periods of time. But if you go and you look on the right side of this chart, where inflation expectations were, or, or inflation was below 2%, it's the better part of the last 20 years or so, right? And we know that the Fed has been dealing with this issue of deflation and trying to target 2% on the upside. So now when I see these sorts of spikes, and we've been talking about it on the macro setup for weeks and weeks now, um, what I thought was really going on, given the major dislocations um, because of the pandemic and supply chains and the like, you're just seeing, whether it be hoarding, whether it be speculation, you just saw input costs go through the roof here. And I think that's what these spikes look like. And I think that while the Fed last week did acknowledge the fact that inflation could be a problem, they do think it's going to be back towards their target rate of 2%. Now, that's the opposite of what they were thinking pre-pandemic, right? Because they were just trying to get up to 2%. No, listen, I I totally, they finally acknowledged that, oh, yeah, by the way, some of this data has been, you know, hot, but we still think we're going to be right. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's great. I mean, of course, they're going to say they still think they're going to be right because they have no other explanation. By the way, Jeremy Grantham, I know you're a big fan of Jeremy yeah. Grantham. I say that half in jest. You know, he was speaking earlier today talking about the fact that the Fed's been clueless. His words, not mine, Dan, since Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker goes back. See those big spikes? See that big sucker in the 70s? Yeah. That's Volcker-ish uh, stuff we're talking about there, Dan. And he was the guy that was able to figure it all out. Um, the rest of these people, in my opinion, are just trying to prolong the inevitable. 
Just my opinion. Dan. Well, right. And, and the inevitable may go on forever, guy. I mean, that that's kind of the view that I would just take that how my thought process have evolved about Fed policy over the last, let's say, 20 years or so um, as I've been in the markets. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, they have a dual mandate. It is stable prices and it's full employment. <laughs> well, I, listen, I, you know, you laugh because you you say it is to prop up the S&P on one hand and the NASDAQ <laughs> on the other. But the fact of the matter is, no matter who the Fed chair has been since Volcker, the stock market goes up. Yeah, it corrects. It, it sometimes has bear markets, but then it goes higher, right? And so when I look at this chart and we can move on from this really quickly, I say to myself, this should be the sort of thing where equity markets should see some palpitations a little bit, right? Because if there's higher input costs, they either have to make a decision. This is uh, S&P 500 companies to pass through those costs to consumers, right? And maybe that affects demand or it hits their margins if they decide to absorb it. The stock market don't care. We're going to look at some charts here, big man. Stock market doesn't care. And, it, you know, this is the classic lower left to the upper right. That trend line that you've been drawing is still intact. We've tested it. We've held it. We've bounced off it. The fact that we're within a whisper of an all-time high in the S&P 500 just should not come as a big surprise to anybody watching because that's effectively been the pattern. You have this, I think you call this the hungry alligator, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. I do. And then, and, and unfortunately <laughs> for the alligator, it doesn't look like it's going to eat anytime soon because this seems to want to break out to the upside. And quite frankly, you know, given all the headwinds, given all the negative news we've had, in my opinion, negative news, the fact that the market continues to grind higher as we get into the next earnings season, which, believe it or not, is it's going to come faster than people realize. Earnings are probably going to be solid again, and the market's going to be forward looking in terms of what those earnings mean. And I think this thing just continues to grind. I still think we absolutely have to test that 200-day moving average, which now comes in the form of 3,800 or thereabouts. But you know what? I'm in the minority on that one, Dan. Nathan. Yeah, you definitely are. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, um, I, got, I see what you see. I think it would take some sort of shift in the Fed um, as it relates to taper or some of their guidance um, you know, about rate um, hikes. But I just don't think that's going to come, in, at least on the taper front, until late August. And to your point about earnings season, I mean, one thing I will tell you this is that you know people are never too worried about S&P 500 earnings multiples until after the fact, right? You that's can right. You can scream, you can scream about it 22 times, 23 times, 24 times. You know, you say the historical is mid to high teens or something like that. It doesn't matter until after the fact. So the one thing I will say is that when we start to get Q3 guidance or guidance for the back half of the year as it relates to corporate earnings, the deceleration and the difficult compares may shine another light on valuation. But speaking of valuation, Guy, let's look at the NASDAQ 100 chart. Here's the one year, very similar to that S&P 500 chart, except for the fact that it basically has picked up the mantle here. It looks like it's about to break out of those um, April highs, those late April highs, not nearly as far off of its 200-day moving average as the S&P 500. Again, a very constructive chart. And I do think it's interesting. We're going to talk about some of these commodity-related names that were doing very well when the global reflation trade was on. It looks like there's been money moving back into mega cap tech after a long slumber, at least a consolidation, which could certainly help the NDX kind of take the lead here as far as the major equity indices. Your, your F mega complex. I mean, the Amazon has been the one that's really just not performing until recently. You know, yeah. Amazon feels as if, again, you know, I'm not playing stock market here, but you just look at the price action of Amazon since this time last year. Yeah. It's been effectively sideways in a, in a relatively narrow range, somewhere between 2950-ish and 3500-ish. Um, and it's vacillated between that. And here we are seemingly getting ready to break out to the upside. That last earnings report 
was remarkable on a number of different levels. What was more remarkable is the fact that it couldn't get through those prior highs of last September and failed, created this double top, and the stock sold off. I only mention that because in order for this NASDAQ, this NDX to take the next leg higher, in my opinion, you need Amazon to follow through. And it feels as if you're finally going to get that. Well, I'll just add this. On July 5th, Amazon is going to have its its only second CEO in the history of the company. Jeff Bezos is stepping down. Andrew Jazzy, who um, has been, um, he has been running their AWS business for a very long time, is taking over. I, I really think that next year, um, we're going to see a lot of difference, um, different things from a corporate level um, on, on the Amazon front that might be of interesting. And it just takes me back to a decade ago when Tim Cook t- uh, took over for Steve Jobs, people didn't think he'd be making too many changes too quickly. And they they started their buyback program and their dividend and you know reinstalled and stated that. And they paid back hundreds of billions of dollars to shareholders since then. I don't think Amazon is that similar sort of business, but there's some other things that they could do to possibly make um, it more enticing to a broader group of investors. Guy, let's go to the Russell 2000. We know that there's a lot of financials in there. We know there's energy. We know it's very domestically focused. You know, the Russell small cap stocks had this massive outperformance since the vaccines in early November and the election. But really, just like you talked about Amazon going nowhere for months and months and months, the Russell has really been trading in this range here. What is the thing that makes it break out or break down in your opinion? Yeah, we have to look backwards first, and it makes a lot of sense in retrospect that as you started getting some really good news on the vaccine front in the fall, the Russell started to the most economically sensitive names are these names, and that move absolutely made sense. Now, the sideways move, in my opinion, also makes sense because it coincided with yields moving higher and then getting to a point where the Russell said, you know what, maybe these higher yields do not work for us. And the sideways action, in my opinion, has been the IWM and the RTY in this case, trying to figure out where's the sweet spot for rates. And here we are at sort of 1.5%, 1.51 in the 10-year, which, by the way, we'll talk about in a minute. And I think that's what it's coming to grips with. I still think, because I do think you're going to have this downdraft, that the Russell's going to fail here. And the sideways action is going to lead to a test of the 200-day moving average, which comes in somewhere around 2,000 or thereabouts. It's about a 10 11% move to the downside. And I believe it'll coincide with rates taking the next leg higher. There are other people that say we're making a base here, getting ready to take the next leg back up. That's what makes markets, as they say, Dan, I'm not trying to be dogmatic. This is the way I look at this chart. Yeah. You know, as far as equities are concerned, Guy, I mean, listen, you know, we have the S&P 500 up near 13% of the year. We have the NASDAQ up about 10%. I, I couldn't think of a better setup for the second half of the year or for the close of the year on the other side of this pandemic than a sell-off, a sharp sell-off to really mm-hmm. shake out some weak hands. I think it would be the most constructive thing. And so maybe you see a quarter end mark over the next week or so um, into the, you know, into the Q3 period. And then maybe you do get some trepidation into that Q2 earnings period that should start in mid-July. I couldn't think of a better setup into earnings, especially with those difficult comparisons. And definitely given the lack of visibility on rates, on taper, and all that sort of stuff for a lot of corporations, mark the stocks down, get in at a level, maybe somewhere close to those 200-day moving averages where it should be some good technical support. But guy, you just mentioned rates. And here's one that we got to flash up here because um, you know, you've been talking about this, the volatility in the rates market, even off of such a low base. L- look at this from Bloomberg. Roller coaster ride in bonds puts onus on Powell to bring calm. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, I didn't put that 
headline in there to trigger you because the words onus on Powell, onus on Powell, you have nightmares about the onus on Powell to do anything. Um, But talk to me what you think about this volatility, because in the last week or so, and going back to that kind of um, April jobs report in early May, we've seen some massive intraday swings, which shouldn't be that normal in such a massive thick market like the 10-year U.S. Treasury. I, I agree with that. And I've said, if, listen, first of all, um, over the last couple of weeks, I think you would you would also say that bond volatility has been relatively calm. So let's just put that out there. Yeah. That in, in fact, you know, this one and a half level-ish, you know, it's been pretty stable. You have a couple bouts here and there, but you understand what I'm saying. What I would submit, I think correctly, is this bond volatility started in September of 2019, long before anybody ever heard of the coronavirus. And I was pointing out then, and I continue to point it out, that U.S. 10-year yields, which should be the most liquid thing on the planet, were not trading that way. And if, that, if we had half of the bond volatility in equities, we'd be talking about it 24-7. And I think to a certain extent, that's what this article is talking about. I think they're about you know a year or so late in terms of putting this out there, but that's fine. Better late than never. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And I think that's what this article is addressing. I think bond volatility is here to stay. Yeah. And again, in my opinion, Dan, I think at some point that bond volatility is going to manifest itself or roll over to the equity markets. Well, yeah. And, and the irony for this here guy is that if everyone who's calling for the onus on pile to bring calm, if they get their wish and the Fed starts to taper their $120 billion a month in bond purchases, that's treasuries and 40 of MBS uh, gets you to 120. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, less liquidity means more volatility. So to me, I, I don't care for what you wish for. As yeah, you like, I get as, it. Man. As you like to say, let's look at that, that the 10 year treasury yield the chart. There's the one year. You see that downtrend. And you and I have been talking about it on the macro setup for months now. I mean, when we topped out at 177, I think in March or early April, you know, the, the bond market, or at least investors in the bond market, started to sniff out some of the stuff that we're talking about as it relates to inflation that maybe the Fed is right. Maybe it is transitory. I'll just make one point. You know, we talked about that kind of early May, that that intraday, and then look at just the other day. I mean, that those are some massive intraday yeah. swings, just, you know, but they bounced off that trend line. It'll be interesting to see if they continue to bang around between 1.4 and 1.6. And if it continues to trend lower, you know, that's another story. But if you have a breakout above that 1.6 and it feels like it's going back to those uh, March highs and then to 2%, that's where you might get your equity market volatility. No question. And, and we're going to move from this quickly. It was interesting, yeah. though, on Sunday night, you know, you saw 10-year yields actually trade down, I think, 135 at one yeah. point. And obviously, Yesterday, they got it back to one and a half percent. So the volatility that article speaks of clearly is there. My point is, you know, I've had this sideways action now for the last few weeks. Uh, Something to keep in mind. I will tell you, just keep an eye on some of the comments out of Bullard now. It's interesting, a non-voting member, but he's made some really interesting statements over the last, you know, six months or so. I believe he's sort of throwing stuff out there as a test balloon. It'll be interesting to see um, what comes out of Powell over the next couple of days. Next chart, please, Dan, because... This is your baby. I mean, you love this. I hear you talk about death crosses. I don't even know what it means. I think the opposite of death cross is like this, the, the, the golden cross, but we ain't seeing anything golden right now in Bitcoin. Uh, well, just real quickly, you know, a death cross is when the 50-day moving average or short-term moving average crosses over um, below the longer term, um, the 200-day moving average. Um, and so a lot of media outlets, they love things like 
death crosses and stuff. It sounds, you know, kind of really horrible. Our friend Melton Demers, who um, is the head strategist over at CoinShares, um, she tweets out this morning, the death cross, um, has, uh, which Bitcoin has pushed through, has grabbed media's attention in recent days. So we ran the numbers to check statistical investment validity. We conclude that it is not a consistent downside price predictor over one, three, six or 12 month periods. It just sounds great, I guess. So they have the data there specifically as it relates to Bitcoin. Um, you know, who knows? Like, listen, we have the chart. You and I have been talking about it. I mean, listen, last week, I'm sure I said this, it was not acting well over the last couple of weeks, even with all the good news, Elon Musk flip-flopping a little bit, um, you know, Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy raising untold amounts of, of you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to buy uh, Bitcoin couldn't break through the 200-day moving average, couldn't get above that February breakout level. Now, here we are this morning breaking that 30,000 level to the downside, which was important technical support back in January. To your eye, Guy, where do you see support? There's kind of an air pocket down to 20,000, which is that massively important psychological level. It was the high in December 2017. Then it was the breakout level in December 2020. What say you about the Bitcoin? I say that's exactly right. And kudos to Carter Worth, who, by the way, was on, on this. Um, you know, you typically early in our business is wrong. He was early and correct yeah. saying that, look, you know, his work, he just tries, he takes the emotion out of it. And his work suggested you're going to take a look back at this 20,000 level, which you correctly mentioned was high in 2017. That's where we found resistance, past resistance. We broke through that resistance becomes support. And that's where it seems like we're headed. And, and stocks, markets, equities, currencies typically do the most damage they possibly can do. You know, it tries to hurt the most people as possible. And the most painful move at this point will probably be a test of that 20,000 level. So I don't think you can take that out of the, out of the uh, calculation. What I'm shocked about, and I've said a number of times that I don't think surprises you nearly as much, yeah. is the fact that this volatility, this move to the downside in Bitcoin, has not had any impact whatsoever on the broader equity markets. I thought um, incorrectly that the two would be tethered together. That has not happened, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I guess you, you know, you and I again have we've talked about this a bit here. You know, at this point, guy, Bitcoin has a five hundred and seventy-five billion dollar market cap. Ethereum has only a 211. I mean, these are not big assets. Now, they may be pockets of speculation and there might be money that's in there that could be at other places, maybe in the equity market. But if you look back to 2018 and Q4 and you look back to Q1 um, 2020, when the last two bouts of, of stock market volatility, it was equities that led and then the crypto followed. So to me, I think that's actually bullish um, for equities in general is that they're not leading um, crypto assets, which really don't have the market cap. I think the total market cap for crypto right now is $1.2 trillion. It's not, you know, it's not particularly significant. Which has been cut in half. If, if, I yeah. think we topped that around $2.3 trillion, yeah. right, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. So, I mean, the damage is there, but it's not manifesting itself anyplace else. I thought the leverage would carry over. I've been wrong. This actually, though, I think is a great time to bring in the aforementioned Peter Hanks, strategist at Daily FX, huge Laker fan, wallowing in his despair as he says to himself, oh, my God, if the Lakers had just gotten through, blah, 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 we could have won. The Nets aren't there. Peter, how are you? I'm good, Dan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> you don't care to comment on my uh, NBA little rant I just went on? You just want to push past that? 
I mean, we're out, you know, I'm not going to wallow too much. Uh, the nets are out as well. I think, you know, the people that are taking the biggest L out there are probably Ben Simmons fans. Um, yeah, that's an excellent point. Not too good. His trade yeah. value kind of looking like the Bitcoin chart here. So too bad for him. It's the a, it's are, a, it's ahead, a different yeah, league. I was going to say, if you think of the talent in the NBA that is sitting at home watching these games on TNT and has to listen to Barkley kind of bark through all this crap at the halftime. I mean, think about AD and LeBron and KD and Kyrie and Ben Simmons and Abid. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Oh, I didn't even get to the Warriors yet with Steph Curry. I mean, like literally 90% of the all-star teams is, is literally on the beach for the summer right now. And yeah. the MVP of the league, by the way, is, is on the, right. I mean, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. anyway, it's, it's all, it's all sort of pretty interesting, but it's also sort of shapes up like, you know, gold was everybody's hero much like the Sixers giving it up here. That's your first chart. So let's talk about that awkward segue to gold, Peter Hanks. <laughs> yeah, no, great segue. And, you know, it was a lot of people's uh, big hope here. Certainly was mine. Last time I was on, I highlighted a golden cross here on gold and just talked about death crosses not really holding any water on Bitcoin. Apparently this most recent one, not holding too much water on the gold chart, uh, breaking back into that downtrend that we've seen since August, and it's just getting really ugly here. Uh, I think next area of support, it's kind of where I've drawn that little circle. You can see some more recent uh, tests of that area, but beneath that, it gets a little sketchy until you get down to the double bottom that we saw in uh, April and March. So pretty dire here. I think uh, the move in yields, move in the dollar, which to your credit guy, I believe a couple macro setup episodes ago you correctly identified as a sort of witch's brew so yeah. you were you were looking in a cauldron out there somewhere and it proved to be correct well my cauldron though i think my cauldron had different ingredients in it as it turns out because dan <laughs> you know dan thought this this dollar trade once again was too crowded and he anticipated a bounce and he also thought these yields you know although elevated he thought they were sort of um it sort of forced their way around this one and a half level and sort of stay stagnant for a while. And that's been correct. Um, but here we are with gold, again, giving up the ghost. You have to wonder how can gold not be performing given the fact that Bitcoin has been cut in half. And I think you just addressed it. The fact that yields really aren't cooperating. And oh, by the way, you've gotten this bounce in the dollar which, if I'm not mistaken, is your next chart. Yeah, let me just uh, comment here, though, on that gold kind of Bitcoin relationship here. There's no doubt that when Bitcoin started going lower a month and a half ago, gold kind of got off, off the mat um, a little bit. And I'll just say this is that, you know, and we've talked about this guy on on, uh, on the tape, our podcast with Danny Moses. He made this point the other day that it seems like in Bitcoin, at least over the last year, every time you have these bouts of selling, you go from weak hands and reach Detail to stronger hands and institutions. And, and here I'll tie this into gold. If that really is the case, then there really is not a great case for $12 trillion in gold reserves as this kind of um, global inflation hedge. Because in my mind, especially if Bitcoin is going to be a bit more environmentally friendly in the next year, two, three, or whatever, I think you're going to see some of those people who allocate towards gold just go into digital gold. That's assuming that it can kind of handle every single time it gets cut in half here. But I, I assume that we see um, stronger hands come in. And that really comes at, um, I, I think, at gold's expense. Yeah, I, I would agree to some extent. I think just having a little bit of Bitcoin, if we talk from like a portfolio management perspective, 
just having a little bit in there is an X factor almost. I mean, I'm not talking a lot, two to 3%. Yeah. If, it, if you get a 250% return uh, while gold's just kind of hanging about returning, you know, one or 2% every year, uh, you can certainly start to see an argument for holding Bitcoin over gold. And um, institutionally, that I think that could change over time. Yep. Now, talking about the dollar here, uh, great segue. Again, I'm trying to live up to guys. Great segue <laughs> earlier. Uh, big, big potential breakout here on the dollar basket. We saw the gold breakout, breakdown that I just highlighted if this dollar move here continues and we start to take out some of these prior areas of support, potential resistance going forward, that could just spell more pain for gold. So uh, early level here to watch, I think if we do continue northward here, uh, that little swing high back in March, around 97, um, that's an early level to watch. And I think in the coming days, if you're looking to trade the dollar here, you'll want to maybe look for a retest of that downtrend, that trend line. And if that holds and we maintain above, I think that may be a green light going forward. Yeah, and there's that great Lady Gaga song, Wrecking Ball, and I know I'm going to get added, but BK says all the time, <laughs> a higher dollar is a wrecking ball for equities. We'll see if that holds up. That is a good-looking chart, which brings us to the next chart. Can't talk about the dollar unless you talk about the euro in relation to. So let's talk about the euro. Yeah, I think that was actually Miley Cyrus with uh, Yeah, Ball, I know, but... I know. <laughs> okay. I'm okay. Well, I just I just decided to at you in person you. instead Appreciate of wait that. until we got to Twitter. So <laughs> I just cut out the middleman, cut out social media. But yeah, looking at the euro here, you can't have a big breakout in the dollar basket without some big moves and the major uh, crosses that make up the dollar basket. The largest one, as we know, is the euro USD. You can see it slipping beneath a long-term uptrend here. Just like the dollar basket, just a little bit inverse, uh, potential support here around 117. That's my next area that I'm really watching out for. Aside from that, uh, it's really a matter of seasonality, in my opinion. You know, this time of year, there's not a lot of conviction. We just got the June Fed meeting. We do have earnings coming up. We do have some Fed speak this week, but I really don't think we're going we're gonna to be able to maintain the conviction, the follow through necessary on some of these pairs. So. That'll be uh, really the deciding factor, in my opinion, whether we go lower or whether we just kind of hang about here. But um, another potential breakdown occurring on a dollar cross is pound dollar. That's a little bit uh, different than euro setup here. Just because the trend line that it broke beneath wasn't as long standing as the one coming up from March 2020 on the euro, but still pretty long-term trend here for cable and that break beneath again not super encouraging uh if you are a cable holder and just like the euro all feeds back into the dollar basket and if these things start to unravel and the dollar can get some strength in its sales uh i think it's i think it's looking pretty good for the dollar basket all right well the dollar basket if it's looking good, what is that negative for? If we see a, a big move that no one is expecting in the U.S. dollar, Peter, what is it? Is there one That's a leading commodity? question, objection, there, Your Honor. Is there That's one a, commodity? The, the lawyer is leading the witness. Is there one commodity that might not fare well? Because it brings me back to, and it's so funny that we talk about taper and we talk about, you know, coming off a of ZERP and all this sort of stuff. When the Fed started contemplating taper in 13 and 14, and then they started doing it, the dollar started to rally 
and something, there's a commodity that's widely used that some people just don't dig anymore. Well, they dig for it, but they just don't really love using it. It got creamed for two years. So let's talk about this commodity, please. It did. And that you bring up an excellent point here with crude oil. Oh. Uh, it is it is one of those <laughs> remaining risk assets, unlike uh, unlike Bitcoin out there that has continued its uptrend and actually not even risk assets, assets, uh, commodities in general. You know, we've seen copper, we've seen gold, we've seen silver, corn, lumber. All those markets are kind of getting pummeled lately. Crude oil, not so much. It's still on that March 2020 uptrend. It has some potential resistance here in the coming days, but, you know, it's looking pretty good uh, from a technical standpoint, in my opinion. And I think maybe that could speak to just the, the strong economy, strong global economy that we're still going into. Um, and some of these other markets may have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves, uh, whereas crude, you know, still more contained. I'm curious as to your thoughts, Dan. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think this can continue. I think the pain trade continues to be higher in crude. I mean, the supply-demand imbalances are there. And I don't think this sort of, it does not, um, it does not clean itself up over a short period of time. This takes a lot longer than people think. And as you've seen moves to the downside that are exaggerated, I think you're going to see a similar move to the upside. And I'm not even taking into consideration when the front month crude went to minus $39 a barrel. Mm. That was obviously a bit of an anomaly, but my point is crude overshoots to the downside, and I think we're in the midst of it overshooting to the upside. But that overshoot could easily take us closer to $100 than people think. Uh, and that's something to watch. And it'll be interesting to watch if it doesn't in the face of a dollar that's rallying as well. I think we're in for some really interesting few weeks um, as we head into the dog days of the summer, as they say, Peter. Yeah, I expect it to be quiet out there. I think uh, Dan mentioned August, September the Jackson Hole Symposium. That's kind of the big event. I hate to go out that long just looking for market activity, but if it's anything like the last two weeks before the Fed, I suspect it could get pretty quiet. And um, that might just see some of these markets slip into ranges, which is great for those range traders out there, but that's not my favorite strategy. Yeah, sure. I'll just mention this. You know, everyone seems to be, you know, every commodity that we've seen where people are worried about getting too far ahead of itself over the last few months has corrected meaningfully. The notion that crude oil won't do it because there's some special supply demand dynamic, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'll tell you two of the top red stories on Bloomberg this morning was about the virus um, picking up in areas where there's not a lot of uh, vaccination concentration here in the U.S., specifically in the South. We know that there's issues in, in, uh, in other places all over the world, including China in some major ports. So the idea that this is going to be some sort of linear global recovery doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And I'll just make I'll just tell you this, going back to the post-financial crisis in the years after like the height of the, the credit crisis here in the U.S., it was a rolling crisis across Europe, across uh, Asia. You know, it just took a long time and people have these confirmation biases, what they just experienced. So my point is, I don't think this is going to be a straight line higher. And if you're betting that crude goes straight to 100 right here, you kind of probably have another thing coming. Maybe it goes to 80. It will need to correct and reload. I like what Dan did there. Well, listen, I want to thank Peter Hanks, a suffering Laker fan, but a badass strategist <laughs> from Daily FX. Thanks, Peter, for joining us. I also want to thank Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus, who both happen to be <laughs> huge fans of the macro setup. And I want to thank you, Dan Nathan, Thanks, for the energy that you bring every Tuesday. I also want to thank our presenting sponsor, IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. We will absolutely see you next Tuesday. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Thanks, guy. Thanks, Peter. Thanks.